0: hi this is elizabeth and i've listened to every single episode of the when dating hurts podcast
1: i have not been in an abusive relationship myself but i've had friends who have and it's good to know the signs early to get out early bill thank you for all that you do
0: The When Dating Hurts podcast is rated one of the most popular relationships podcasts in the world. Why is that? It's our guests. Whether you're listening to subject matter experts or domestic violence survivors, you know you're hearing what you need to know, and that is the truth about dating and domestic violence. Why it happens, how it happens, when it happens, where it happens and how victims become survivors. This podcast is a powerful way for you, your friends, and your family to stay informed and stay safe. Thank you for your support. we return to Ryan's story, part two of Two Parts. Ryan is clinging to the idea that everything might work out if he hangs in there with his wife, but it gets a lot worse before it reaches its climactic ending. Here we go. There's a term that I've seen you use in something that you wrote, and I don't want to give it away, but I think it's it's just so great, so well put. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh
1: yeah. yeah. So that that's uh what I like to refer to as grade A hopium. So the hopium and my definition is essentially you're so addicted to the hope that things are going to get better that you're able to overlook any particular trivialities and emotional issues or major red flags that pop up in the moment because you're so future focused in a larger codependent type of environment or focus area for myself in particular that you just are like i'm I'm gonna get to that dream i'm going to know, keep looking forward. I'm going to overlook what I'm facing in the day to find myself really enjoying the hope of tomorrow. Hopium is what got me through most of those circumstances in my early life. And it was, this was just a continuation of being addicted to that.
0: Yeah. I would imagine that what happens is if you're kind of focusing on the goal, then you know, there are going to be setbacks along the way. So these various things as they came along are kind of expected and it wasn't two completely perfect people coming together in this perfect union. You know, you knew that you had things that you were working on, so did she. So it kind of makes sense. And I I think the term hopium is just fabulous, because that would really help you kind of anesthetize a lot of your feelings as you go forward. The idea of Lewis and Clark, it jumped into my mind that that they may uh, have two of their canoes snap in half today, but that's part of the journey. So we'll find horses or we'll buy some canoes from somebody and or we'll build them. And we're just going to keep going because we're going west. And you guys were going, as far as you were concerned, you were going to a better place. Here come the setbacks and that's okay too. You, you anticipated them.
1: All right. And overcoming setbacks when you're coming from that kind of background is just how you live life. As you said, you know, you're heading west. You're exploring uncharted territory together. And when you cross that bridge or you find that tribe that's unfamiliar, it's just, you know, another obstacle. And as you said so aptly, you know, this was just another obstacle for us to overcome together. And the key word is for me in that regard is the idea of togetherness in that point. So like we were in this together and my role was to be the support. I always felt like I had a little bit better grasp on a lot of my issues, at least on the surface beforehand, and and I always found myself being the savior or white knight, and that's kind of how I viewed myself, but really it's just enabling the behavior.
0: Yeah, with the best of intentions, you actually made them continue or get worse. Right. So typically with these types of things that you'll go through a rough patch, but then things will get better. So did you feel things were getting better at, at different times along the way? I mean, you must have felt like you got the you got the carrot once in a while and, and it wasn't a steady diet of the stick. Oh, absolutely. And that really
1: helps with the whole hopium dynamic where it's like you do see those glimmering moments of absolute positivity and joy, but it kind of circles back to following the familiar pattern of just reutilizing the love bombing again over and over where it's the highs are just so incredibly high, but then the lows are you overlook the lows, but the lows are really bad.
0: Would you liken love bombing to trying to take a drink from a fire hydrant?
1: Yeah, I I really like that. Seems very reasonable. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're so super sweet all of a sudden, then as you go down this entire cycle, You know, you start to see the really, the really big sweet movements like, oh, dinner's actually prepared for me for once, or the dishes were done, so I don't have to do it, or you've reconciled the accounting books for the house for this month, like small things like that that really meant a lot to me with my type of personality traits. It became almost predictable in the roller coaster of emotionality and that dynamic. You know, it would be really positive for a little while, then that would precipitate a a collapse. And as that relationship came to a close, you know, I was able to really observe that fluctuation and the roller coaster ride, so to speak.
0: So while this bothersome behavior, to put it in its smallest way, was happening, did you find yourself looking for opportunities to go to friends or family and tell them about it? Or was this, were they gone at this point in time, would you say, and it wasn't even a possibility? Or is it like, One of those things where it's like, look, um, this is going on. I'm dealing with it. It's almost like I don't even want their opinion on it, or I don't even want them to know about it. It was
1: definitely like a combination of A and C on the menu there. One, I didn't really have too many people to turn to. And then with Mm -hmm. my trauma response, I tend to do what's called disassociate or freeze. I would just internalize everything and just disappear into my chores and my my hobbies are household maintenance for everything. So it's like, oh, well, I'm out working on the cars and fixing an engine or I'm cooking a major meal for her and I for the week, doing a big you know, Sunday meal prep type thing or cleaning the house or I'm sitting there accounting and doing the balancing of the books for our impending vacation to take together You know, and doing all the planning for that,
0: so on and so forth. So when you were the chef of the house, and you're working on the cars, and you're planning vacations, how did she feel about your proficiency in those areas? Generally, she either felt that I was
1: either very capable and just let me be by myself, or she would disrespect what I was doing. So, for instance, having worked in kitchens in a lot of my early career, I really could not stand... People putting knives into the sink. You know, it's one of the major safety hazard things that they discuss. Is do not put knives in the sink. And I feel like she would know that I'm sitting there doing a large Sunday meal prep, and then come in and make something for herself, or you know, sneak something off of what I'm preparing, and then throw the knife into the sink while I'm sitting there cooking. And I would try to bring that particular issue up, and it's like, oh well, you're taking up so much space in the kitchen. It's your fault. And it's like you literally just came in and threw the knife in the sink when you know I'm the, sitting here and constantly to provide for us for the entire week. Just that blatant disrespect. Or it's like, I'm working on the car and it's like how oh, my dad could fix this in a day or Why, my cousins could fix that, you know, right now.
0: Why can't you work faster? Why can't you work better?
1: Yeah. Or, you know, the food's not right this week kind of thing like that. And it's like, okay, well, you can cook.
0: No, it's okay. So your way of getting through this in a lot of ways was either to hit the pause button on your brain and go out and do something else, or if you were actively thinking about it, then the hopium, the grade A hopium comes into play then. Would you say that's pretty much the two gears that you operated in?
1: Pretty much. And, you know, if I was out actively doing the activity, I would also intersperse the hopium into that idea. So it's like, I'm cooking this healthy meal for us to enjoy to be healthier so that when we get to that phase down the life, you know, we'll be better off for it. Or I'm fixing this car so that we can continue to have jobs and stable employment to plan for our future and be ready for
0: any challenges. You're trying to take real steps, doing real things, and you're looking at it like this could be the path out of this world that we're living in right now. At least we're sustained. And if anything, things could get better if you can just do what you're good at and do that, even though you're getting a lot of flack coming the other side. By the way, you look very fit. I guess your obese days are far behind.
1: Yeah. In the past year and a half, I've lost 175 pounds. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, Run marathon multiple, I've run thousands of miles this past couple of years and work actually took me abroad during the pandemic where I was the first, one of the first people to walk the vaccine off the plane for africa so it's just
0: oh wow so what do you weigh now i'm down to 170 so
1: you were 345
0: what a transformation that is amazing
1: yeah now i'm training for half ironman for triathlons 215 days so no 220 days sober
0: oh good for you that's fabulous i mean I was just so impressed. I didn't know anything about any of that, of course. Did you find times along the way where you said, that's it, I can't do this anymore, and then you just tried to stand up to your wife? I mean, you just say, okay, give me an idea how you sent that up, and I have a feeling I know how that was received.
1: Yeah, so I I definitely did have a few of those moments where I just absolutely couldn't take it anymore. And
0: I would try to set it up like, hey, you
1: know, we, let's say we're doing a regular check-in throughout the day or checking in as to be required, you know, through my workday. And I say, hey, I want to have a conversation tonight, you know, let's get some food and sit down and talk. Throughout the entire conversation, you know, I would try to have a regular decorum, regular way of speaking, you know, harking back to debate club and things of that nature where it's, I'm going to speak my piece. I don't want to be interrupted. I don't want to be shouted. I don't want to be talked over. I don't want to be chastised when I'm just speaking. It's on my heart. And then I'd like you to listen to what I'm saying, and then you can engage. I felt at the time a very reasonable request. When that would transpire, most of the time, I would be completely interrupted and stopped from speaking my piece in that particular issue, shouted at, tried to chastise. no, it's not that way. you know you're the one doing this, and it's your fault. and I don't raise my voice. I can only recall raising my voice in the last five years, maybe two or three times. well, you know, I would just take it. I was worried that people were gonna call the cops just from the shouting alone, you know my Apartment where we were living in at the time, and I just didn't want there to be two voices shouting at each other. It just ended up me being completely turned around and just apologizing for even bringing it up. So you had then, to
0: kind of back out of there gently.
1: Right. And in backing out, I just absorbed and re-subsumed the feelings of whatever was wrong or whatever I brought up and just continually blame myself and further exacerbated the control and the issues that were going on.
0: I can't imagine the level of patience that you exhibited. Can you recall the last time you did raise your voice? And I can't imagine. Do you recall when you lost it and yelled? The last time I I lost it and
1: yelled was actually during a major breakthrough in my recovery where I was I sat down and was talking with my father, whom I now have a a much better relationship than when I did when I was a child, and I was unpacking a lot of baggage where, you know, as a 29-year-old at the time, he didn't even know my birthday and i'm an only child so that kind of really uh broke me in that moment and it was more of like a cry sob at that point like you don't even know my birthday and now like it's become somewhat of a running joke in our family where i'll throw that in his face and be like you know hey what's my birthday and like okay now he has it memorized it's like yeah
0: you know i'm glad you guys worked that out that's great his new his wife
1: won't let him forget it either you know she understood my dynamic after him and i got done talking that day she's like i can't believe you you know ron like that's my Uh dad's uh name i "I can't believe you didn't even know that
0: yeah that's that's tough man that's a damning one that's tough
1: but uh and then the other time was i was actually unpacking a, a large amount of trauma in relation to my relationship with my mother and i had on the phone you know basically told her to stay out of my life i needed to have space and there was a very large amount of push pull dynamic that was exhibited with between her and I during my relationship growing up and her dealing with her own issues created a lot of the, the backdrop for me accepting the kind of treatment that I went through with my ex wife with that push pull.
0: You grew up with it, you know, it wasn't something new to you and that was your that was your way of working your way through it. So we've been spending most of this chat talking about emotional abuse, verbal abuse mind games, manipulation, were there actual real-life threats of violence, meaning that you thought this person might physically harm you, yeah. So were there threats? And then I have to then follow that by saying if the answer is yes, then then was there real violence? The
1: threats were early on and throughout the early stages through the middle stages of our relationship were either, you know, the performative slap, as I'll call it, or the performative hit where, you know, somebody, I'm, I'm a six foot one guy, Bill, I'm a pretty big Bill, you know, I was 350 pounds when her and I were together, like, a, she was five five and Taking a small little hit every now and then, or like a slap or getting shoved, kind of thing, was seen more as the cliche trope of the playful dynamic. It didn't really hurt or bother me in that sense. Just felt like that was supposed to be quote unquote normal. But then, as we discussed earlier, there was always that discussion around the implied violence that she was capable of. And that was a constant reaffirmation or constantly reaffirmed throughout most of our relationship. And then near the end, it eventually started devolving into more physical altercations and things like breaking glasses. She ended up destroying a lot of property in the house. And then also there was an incident where she had stabbed me once. And then this started to evolve and or devolve, I should say, into a more dangerous environment.
0: So she stabbed you. So tell us about that incident, if I could ask you to. Yeah, so I was... In the middle
1: of a large meal prep for a couple weeks worth of food where i was planning on freezing some of it and having food for dinner that night and then also food for lunches for the week and i had the day off so i was drinking to excess and just enjoying the day and you know she had to work so she was in the office thankfully most of the day i had been working over top of the grill all day and just cooking nonstop until eventually she comes home i'm bringing in most of the food getting ready to portion it out and set it aside for both dinner that night and for freezing and for the rest of the week's meal prep. And there's a particular roast that I had been cooking. I really wanted to have the end piece. You know, I like a little thing, sometimes a little bit extra burn on some of my food. And that was that particular piece that I had wanted. I had told her that before she even came in the kitchen to look at everything that i cooked. And she takes the knife and grabs it and i'm like hey what are you doing she like starts cutting off the piece that i want yeah i'm gonna get myself a piece and it's like no i i told you i wanted that piece and then she takes the knife and ends up stabbing my hand with it you know i'm like what are you doing kind of thing like that she's like this isn't playing around like it's not funny to like stab somebody over just a piece of food kind of like that that was just a small physical altercation of physical violence in that way, you know, like, but it was definitely an escalation in the other violence that had existed in the relationship.
0: But when somebody stabs you, I mean, if she just, I mean, if somebody has a knife and they even poke you, that's a big deal. So how bad is this? I mean, do you have to stop everything and go to the emergency room or is this not quite like that?
1: Not that bad, thankfully. You know, I have a lot of first aid and survival skills that I've had to learn through the years. I've learned through most of the years. So, Assessing damage on the fly like that is relatively easy for me and uh, my mom was a trauma nurse so I got to learn a lot of that particular recovery and healing type stuff from her too in a lot of my earlier years. I assessed the damage and I'm like yeah it's, I'm not going to go to the hospital over this.
0: So did you both still sit down and have a meal?
1: Eventually, I got drunk enough to the point where, you know, we both got drunk at that point. We were both heavily into alcohol and got drunk and just kind of
0: forgot about it at the moment. So at what point in time is this? And I guess I'll mark it from the end. So at some point you do get separated and you do get divorced. How much time after you were stabbed did you actually get divorced?
1: This is about seven months before the separation where in, she was day drinking because she had off work or got off early and I went out to run errands for the house and go shopping and stuff like that. I was coming back with everything and she was pretty inebriated. She had like the equivalent of two bottles of wine by the time I got home and is in some kind of really frustrated and angry mood. And, you know, at the behest of my therapist at the time, because I had started seeing therapy after a major fight that was affecting my work, my work actually got me signed up through a therapy program. She comes in and starts demanding the keys for the gun cabinet. My therapist had advised me to start storing documents because she had heard about seeing everything that was going on from my perspective and start storing the documents and firearms and keep the key to yourself. Don't let her have access to mm-hmm. anything. I come home one day and she starts demanding the keys. She's blocking my doorway, blocking me from leaving the bathroom, following me around, just repeating herself, demanding the keys to the gun cabinet. And I just stick to a one word answer of no until she grabs a medium-sized sledgehammer that I kept in the house for doing some kind of maintenance and stuff like that. It's like, if you don't give me the keys, I'm going to, you know, expletive, expletive, you know, break in the locks, do what I have no idea because I'm not asking questions. I'm just not giving the keys over to the gun captain. Yeah, so I'm kind of freaking out at that moment, as I think is bright, and my therapist have been Kind of prepping me for for the escalation from the stabbings and the light hittings and stuff like that.
0: Sure, to who would? Like this. Of course.
1: And knowing that there are firearms in the house, she's like, "Make sure you have complete command and control over everything." uh It's pouring rain outside, and I'm freaking out. I'm keep my keep my eye on her. I'm now I'm backing away from her, but not yes. actually disengaging from looking at her. And I'm grabbing my rain jacket, I'm putting, slipping into my shoes, and she keeps yelling at me trying to get the keys. And I grab my little go bag that I had prepared, and I step out into the rain, and I hear her hammering away at the gun cabinet. And at that point, I'm shaking, you know, like if she gets into this thin, you know, 16th thick steel, basically gun cabinet, and who knows what she's going to do. There's weapons with ammunition in there. They're all relatively loaded and ready to go. And It's just I, uh, I'm going to have to call the police and I do.
0: Mm. So when you slipped outside, did you have a cell phone with you?
1: I did, thankfully.
0: And that's how you made the call? Yep. Yeah. So the police show up and I would imagine your version of the story and hers didn't quite match. Would that be fair?
1: That's absolutely fair. You know, uh, the police are trained in de-escalation and I don't fault them for, you know, viewing things in certain ways you know but i'm calling the police absolutely shaking i'm a six foot one guy just completely shaken to his core and i'm outside in the rain just you know trying to hide away from this circumstance and they get her to come outside and they get her to you know she drops the hammer at that point and spins their story separated while i'm sitting in the squad car and you know the cops basically just say you know get your stuff Get, get out of the house, let things cool off and get going. And that's when we separated.
0: Oh, really? That was it. That, that is the spot. Right. That's the time. You can mark that on your, your calendar. So from that time, okay, so you're physically separated, then you have to become legally separated, then you become divorced. So would you say then, roughly speaking, from that Gun cabinet moment to finally being divorced is roughly what 18 months later or so. Yeah, 18
1: months or so is how long it took to finalize the divorce itself. And you know, we were renting an apartment at the time. We didn't have any kids or pets, and the only real assets we had were two cars. So for a 20-something, you know, 18 months for a divorce was absolutely crushing with attorneys' fees and support money and everything at the time. Just absolutely wild because I. Went from having a house and a wife to basically being homeless and couch surfing through family that was thankfully willing to take me back, at least for a lot of them, you know, at least humor me for a little while until I could find a more permanent place to land.
0: So you were yes. divorced in 2019?
1: No, 2020. So it'll have been a year and about 10 days or so it was the official divorce decree. It was mailed
0: here. Okay. From the time you you got divorced, has there been any contact between the two of you? Um, absolutely zero. So backing
1: up a little bit, when she was talking about her past and the way she transitioned away from her experiences, she tended to burn the bridge and then disappear. You know, And that was part of her relocating to Hawaii. And then she had basically burned a lot of the bridges in Hawaii with her, quote unquote, friends there. And You know, that was one of the impetuses for also moving over here to start again kind of thing.
0: So the idea that you would get divorced and that's another burned bridge, then the idea of her not really wanting to communicate with you is, is the way that she rolls. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah. Beyond the first month where she was trying to continue to get me to kowtow and continue to be completely supportive while being homeless of her while she's living in the house that I had to flee from, It eventually became more of a stereotypical divorced party type of environment where we each had
0: our lawyers. We would go through the lawyers for any communication. At some point in time, you reached out to a domestic violence agency. Can you tell us about that?
1: After the stabbing incident and at the behest of the work therapist, I reached out to in private or in secret to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and they have a service where they offer free IMing or chatting that immediately closes out and deletes the cookies from the computer after utilizing the service so that it can't be tracked or monitored. I was talking with them in conjunction with the therapist, and that was the first real inkling I had learned about more specific markers for domestic violence. And then also the people, I ended up taking a private phone call on my long commute home from work to discuss what was going on regarding everything and gain some more opportunities and insights into where I could find additional resources. And that put me onto a couple online forums as well, where I could really engage in a more private manner and like kind of like a group behavioral therapy type of environment but you know completely anonymous so it was a very interesting thing and then after the attack you know i had called my personal therapist that was ascribed from work and she recommended touching base with a group known as laurel house i had called them the morning after i'm i'm with family about 100 miles away from where I was living with my ex wife. And I'm sitting there trying to get through to somebody. Mm-hmm. And at first, they put me in touch with the batterers line in the city.
0: Oh, you know, my. There's
1: an abusers line for helping people that are abusers. And uh, I'm sitting there staring down the barrel of my gun, staring off into this lake, suicidal, just like, what the F is going on?
0: I mean, are you saying that literally? That's yes. what you were doing? you were contemplating killing yourself yes i'm so sorry
1: um and i, I, st- okay. I started talking to the the batterers helpline
0: and and now you're on the wrong phone line because you're on you're on the giving end the abuser batterer's line right
1: and uh i'm talking to the representative at the batterer's line and she's like Wait a minute. Let me uh, let me let me transfer you back. This, you're not right for this. You know, this is for people that are actively engaged in abusing their partners.
0: My goodness.
1: And uh, I eventually get back on the phone with the batterer's line person on the phone with me, and she's like, "Yeah, you need to really talk to this guy. He needs help." Wow. And that starts my relationship with
0: the uh, Laura oh, house I'm so counselors. Glad. And when I'm so glad. So glad. But you initiated program. the call, right? You called. You called them. You called Laurel House, but you just wound up on the. You were you were supposed to be on the A line. You were on the B line. Yeah, pretty much. And at that moment, you're contemplating taking yourself out of this world.
1: Yeah, uh, suicide had been something I had contemplated multiple times throughout my life, from some of the major issues that I've had to overcome. And you know that at that moment, it was really speaking to me. You know, yeah, I mean. How, how much worse can things get? You know, right, Bill? Like, how, where else can I really go? I'm homeless. I'm just been almost killed by my wife.
0: Looking like a good option, huh? Or maybe the only option. You
1: know, might as well, might as well just end this now. Thankfully, you know that in my recovery, that wasn't the only suicidal ideation that I had, but um, that was probably one of the worst moments that I've had in the least recent memory. That whole, that whole transition for that weekend.
0: Yes, of course. So when you look at that snapshot, like you're looking at it, holding it in your hand, and you look at yourself today, you're just this amazing guy, absolutely amazing guy. I would imagine when you were going through that, you're still at your 345 or 50 area, right? You're dealing with drinking, you're dealing with the marital situation, plus you've been beat up by life so many times, time and time again, and you're ready to go. How many years back would you say that, that moment on that phone call how far back are we looking?
1: Uh, that moment was two and a half years ago.
0: Thirty months, and here you are today. I mean, it's just I have such respect for for you hanging in there. You're just this most amazing guy. You have to write the book, and it's and it's not for any other reason that I think. I mean, writing a book is a lot of work, so I'm I'm not saying it's easy. But but if no other reason, your journey is unbelievable, but very believable too believable, too realistic, but I just feel like so many other people would, they would look at it and say, if this guy could do all of that, I can do some of that at least because it's just incredible. I mean, you go from 350 pounds to running marathons and looking forward to an Ironman competition, and that's almost the least of it. For a lot of people, they, they could watch that on TV and say, wow, I, I could never do that. And then they go to another channel, you know, they go watch uh, some game show. One of the things, though, that I wanted you to talk about a little bit maybe is your, you know, you called the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which I tell people all the time to call 800-799-SAFE. That's I'm sure you know that number by heart, too. And then calling Laurel House, one of the most comprehensive groups. I mean, my relationship with them is very strong. And what words of encouragement could you give to people who are going through domestic violence or dating violence? Relationships, these unhealthy relationships, could you give them a sense of, I, I'm trying to find a way to ask you to encourage them to seek out this kind of help rather than just become more and more isolated and lonely and that there really is help out there and they don't have to be alone?
1: Everybody's unique journey is so it's similar, but it's also so dissimilar. And when you're facing that type of obstacle, you know if i'm going to give words of advice to people that are facing that obstacle i'm going to say you know trust yourself that that's the number 1 thing that i would say to people that are currently facing down violence or abuse of any kind if you feel that you are being abused or you feel like you're being attacked or you feel you are being attacked and you're responding in negative ways and you're trying to cope with everything but there's that little nagging voice in the back of your head that says, you know, something's not right here. Trust that voice. Really listen to that voice. Hear hear what that voice is saying. That's a, that's a part of you that's reaching out from the farthest reaches of your mind and is saying, I'm here. You might have pushed me to the side for just your coping strategy or ignoring or just taking that beating. That part of you is still a part of you. And listening to that little voice and allowing that voice to get louder inside of your head, really learning to trust and accept that part of yourself as that is the truth of what's going on in your unique circumstance, that in conjunction with reaching out for additional help to find that voice is really going to help you get out of that situation. So I know for myself, without finding that little voice and also reaching out for that help to help amplify that voice, I would probably still be married. I'd probably... Be either dead or still married at this point. And I wouldn't have made any of the changes that I've made now. I wouldn't be recovering from all of that and working on the recovery from my childhood traumas either. I wouldn't be moving forward the way I've moved forward at all. That's how I would advise people. Trust that little voice that's saying something in the back of your mind that says something's not right here.
0: Yeah, I I like that advice quite a lot. I know of others, I know for myself too that that listening to how you really feel and allowing that to guide you, really getting to that place, like nobody knows you better than you. If you don't save you, no one will save you. you know, it has to be you. You have to get to that point with a relationship like this where you bottom out and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this for one more day. I need to seek help. I have to be safe about it. I have to save myself. No one else is going to do it. No one else knows exactly what you're going through. And I think that, that what you've done is just... Just so incredibly remarkable. I know I keep saying this again and again, but I didn't know your full story, and it is really something I'll never forget. And I'm so glad that that we've come together to do this today. And I, I
1: just wanted to say I did a little bit of my own research on your background. I'm really sorry to hear about what happened with your daughter. Um, it really breaks my heart. You know, I, I couldn't imagine that loss. Because, um, like you know, I've always wanted to be a father as part of my background. And I just imagine losing my my daughter to that type
0: of environment, really. Yeah, I appreciate your empathy about that. The only way that I find real therapy is doing what I'm doing now. And that is that I, I can't do anything about my daughter's situation. But it does at times, having had that happen, and now knowing a fair amount about dating violence and domestic violence, it does, or it helps, I should say, a lot of people listen to people like me, I found over the years, this happened to my daughter 16 years ago, that audiences, you know, they will listen to someone who is a who's a survivor or somebody who has been victimized in some way. They will listen. And so I, I take that as a as a real opportunity and responsibility to use that. But Ryan, thank you for joining me on this One Dating Hurts episode. And as I've said several times, I think that I have just so much respect for you because it takes so much courage to come on a public podcast like this and talk about some of the worst times in your life. I mean, reliving it has to be really so hard, but you have to know, you have to believe that you're helping others by doing this. And And I hope it's been helpful to you on a very personal level to talk about it. So again, thank you. You know, what you're sharing will definitely help others who are facing domestic violence right now. You've talked about reaching out and making that phone call to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. I'll repeat, 800-799-SAFE. Laurel House is the domestic violence agency that you found that I imagine was local to where you were living. And there are domestic violence agencies in every county, every town. You just have to get help. And if you have a friend, if someone has a friend who's going through something, that person maybe doesn't want to make that phone call. It's too weird for them. It's too scary. They don't know how it's going to go. And sometimes just saying to a friend, look, I'll sit with you. We can make the call. And if it's going a certain way and you don't want to continue, we can always say, look, we can't do this now. And we can hang up. It doesn't have to be this pressurized, hard thing. Plus you're telling it to somebody in a very anonymous fashion. No one else is going to know you made the call. It's not going to affect you. They're not going to send a SWAT team to your house, so I think that uh there are so many so many things to remembered from us speaking today, Ryan. you know I just want to thank you for stopping and doing this, and I'm so glad we met really it's 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 an honor to meet you. I mean that sincerely
1: and it's been a It's been cathartic to talk about it and try to you know reach out and help people you know just mirroring what you said, I would say anybody. You know, listening to this, that anybody is capable of being a victim of domestic violence. It doesn't matter your orientation, size, the size of the perpetrator, or the other individual. Anybody can be a victim. And you know, if you are experiencing any difficulties that you know I had described, or have you seen in the media or what have you, that you should. Not be afraid to talk to somebody. And you know, the National Domestic Violence Helpline is definitely one of the first stops I would highly encourage everybody to take a look at. And then, you know, privately Googling things is also another really great option for at least getting a getting some kind of backdrop on, you know, other experiences. So
0: thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking to you again sometime soon. I hope.
1: Bill, it's been a pleasure, and again, I'm really sorry for everything that had transpired in your past that led you down this course, but you know, you're know, you making a huge difference in a lot of people's lives, and I want to say thank you for having me on.
0: Yes, thanks for doing this with me today. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. This concludes Ryan's story. Like every survivor we have featured, Ryan has the patience of a saint, but a safe separation was the only answer to a better life. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell. At WendatingHerts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at WendatingHerts.com.